Hi, this is Yitz Greenberg, and I'm here to share with you the Dvar Torah for the Parshat Vayeshev. Its title is The Messianic Life Force, or The Strange Genealogy of Mashiach, Messiah, Son of David. And let me start initially by acknowledging the primary source of this Dvar Torah. I heard the core concept in a talk on this very Parsha, given by Rabbi Joseph B. Soloveitchik in Boston in the late 1950s. I was so struck by the theme that I never forgot it. Over the years, I've worked variations on this theme, but this is the first time that I've put it in writing. To my knowledge, that year was not published, not even in Soloveitchik's posthumous writing series. Let me also acknowledge with gratitude this is but one drop of an ocean of Torah and insight which I gained from him. The story of Judah, told in our Parsha, is full of tragedy and pain. With surprising twists and religiously dissonant behavior, perhaps even a bit shocking to the pious reader. And yet this is only one of three surprising narratives that make up the ancestry of King David and of the final Messiah, the son of David. This strange genealogy demands an explanation. Judah and his wife Bathsheba, by the way, that may not be her actual name, she's the daughter of a Canaanite man named Shua. The Torah not infrequently leaves off the name of important women in its narratives. The name of Tamar, the heroine of this story, is given, probably because she's the main driver of the action. So Judah and his wife Bathsheba raised three children. The firstborn, heir, marries a woman named Tamar. Er is apparently a bad person. He dies young and without children. As was the custom in the pre-Sinitic times, when a man dies childless, his brother marries his widow, and their firstborn child carries the name of the deceased and is designated to carry forth the chain of life of the brother whose life was cut off. Judah, the grieving father, honors this custom and marries Tamar to his second son, Onan. Although Onan marries Tamar, he knows that the first child will be counted as his brother's offspring, so he prevents conception by spilling his seed, that is, masturbation or coitus interruptus. He too is, quote, struck down by God and dies young and childless. See Genesis 38, verse 10. Now imagine the scene of death and devastation left behind. Two parents have lost two grown sons in their prime of their lives, both childless. Perhaps the tragedy is compounded by the suspicion or even knowledge that both sons were not good people. Consider also Tamar's pain and ruin. She suffered through extended periods of childlessness, and you might compare this to Rebecca's experience in Genesis 25-21 or Rachel's in Genesis 31. And she suffered through the untimely death of her first husband. This was followed by the anguish of a second husband, who far from comforting her and carrying on the line of life, was self-centered, begrudging to his brother, and deliberately debilitated their sexual life to prevent conception. And he too dies young, leaving her bereft, childless, and lonely. Tamar is now a widow, bearing the stigma of being a katlanit, a killer woman, a kind of a black widow. In Yevamot 64b, Rabbi Yehuda Nasi rules that a woman whose first two husbands died may not get married to a third husband. The Shulchan Aruch and Evan Hazar Hilchodisha, chapter 9, paragraph 1, codifies this ruling. But it does report that many men ignore this ruling, and we, meaning the authorities, 
quote, raise no objection. But the woman who has buried more than one husband means that many men, by drawing conclusions or by cultural tradition, shun such women rather than face the risk of being the next fatality. Judah feels the obligation to marry Tamar to his youngest son, Shela, but he fears that this would spell death to Shela as well. So he tells Tamar to remain instead in her widowed state and wait until Shela grows up. In effect, he dooms her to an endless loneliness, anchored to a dead man or a future redeemer, and unable to seek any new relationship or marriage on pain of being deemed an adulterous wife. Years pass. Tamar sees there is no move to bring Shela to her as a husband. Her biological clock is ticking. Judah's wife dies. He recovers from his grief, yet is deeply lonely. Tamar learns that he's going to Timnah to graze his sheep and decides to, as it were, draft him to be her redeemer, her lover. She dresses as a prostitute and waits for him on the road to Timnah. Judah passes and sees her, but does not recognize her as his daughter-in-law. He feels a rush of desire and sexual need and asks to have sex with her. He was so far from planning to go to a prostitute that he actually has no money to pay her hire. He offers to send her a goat when he reaches Timnah. She asks him to leave his signet, rope, and staff with her as security, and he agrees. Out of that encounter, Tamar conceives. She leaves the scene, removes her harlot's clothing, and resumes wearing her widow's weeds. When Judah, a man of his word, sends her the goat, the prostitute on the road to Timnah is nowhere to be found. In three months' time, Tamar's pregnancy is visible. Judah is notified that his daughter-in-law has violated her widowhood and is sentenced to death by fire. As she is taken out to be burned, however, Tamar sends Judah the signet, staff, and rope that he left with her. In a remarkably understated scene, she does not name him, only saying that these belong to the man with whom she slept. Judah is moved and shaken. He sees that Tamar acted for the sake of having a child and realizes that he had sinned against her by holding her captive while not giving Shela to be her husband. He publicly acknowledges his personal responsibility. Tamar is saved. She is given the divine blessing of two healthy children who grow up to be community leaders and generational transmitters of the covenantal chain. Unlike Rebecca's twins, where the first one out was a source of problem for a lifetime, Tamar's twin, who fights his way out first, parrots, meaning bursts out, is a good link in the covenantal chain, as is his brother Zorach. Now, in the book of Ruth, this genealogy of Judah's son Peretz is taken up and directly traced to King David. See Ruth chapter 4, verses 18 to 23. In other words, the ancestor of the ultimate Messiah, the Messiah, son of David. In making this connection, the story informs us that Ruth, a daughter of Moab, is central to the Messianic lineage. This, in turn, directs our attention to the original ancestor of Moab, the daughters of Lot. That story is even more surprising and shocking than Peretz's conception. Lot and his daughters are the only survivors of the total destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. From a cave on a mountain, they look down on a scene of smoking ruins 
and total devastation as far as the eye can see. There is no sign of life anywhere. See Genesis 19, verses 25 and 28. As the end of the world as they know it sinks in, the eldest daughter initiates a stunning response. She tells the younger sister, quote, There is no man left alive in the land who can come to us. See Genesis 19.31. This is, of course, a euphemism for having intercourse in order to conceive. She believes that the whole earth is wiped out. With their ultimate death, humanity, maybe life itself, will come to an end. But Lot's daughter is not willing to accept the end of humanity. In truth, there is one man left to seed the future, their father, Lot. Her proposal is, let us get him drunk, then lie with him. Thus we will get the seed for new life from our father. See verse 34 in that chapter. Both daughters carry out this plan on successive nights. Lot is so drunk that he does not know or remember what happened. Both daughters conceive, and the elder gives birth to a boy, Moab, the eponymous ancestor of the Moabite nation from which Ruth is descended. This is hardly an illustrious ancestry for the ultimate redeemer of the world, the one who will bring God's kingdom, the world's final political, economic, social, spiritual perfection. If I may interrupt this account and tell a personal story. In my work with Jewish Christian Dialogue, I sought ways of stressing Jewish distinctive values and often focused on the contrast between the Torah's flawed heroes, take Jacob, Judah, Joseph, Moses, David, etc., and the Christian vision of ideal heroes, modeled on Jesus, saintly and perfect in every way. I always got a big response when I delivered the punchline, how to birth the ultimate hero, the Messiah. In Christian tradition, he is perfect and untainted by sin or even sex. Jesus is the outcome of a virgin birth, while his mother Mary is born out of an immaculate conception, i.e. untainted by original sin. And how was the Jewish Messiah birth? Out of drunken incest and prostitution. Then I would argue my Jewish case. Take a redeemer who was born in heaven and never tasted sin or experienced the blood, sweat, and tears of earthly oppression. Arriving on earth, that Messiah would turn right around and return to heaven at the first encounter with the unspeakable cruelty, suffering, and pain of life on earth. However, a Messiah born out of the unyielding pushback of survivors of total devastation? A Messiah who had grown in the reality of a cruel, wicked society? Who was himself the outcome of a stained but life-affirming sexual congress? Would encounter the worst that the planet could throw at him and would wait right in. She would roll up her sleeves and repair the broken world. This pushback of life against death and evil is the core of an insight of Rabbi Soloveitchik. He pointed out that Ruth represented the same response as Lot's daughters and Tamar's, a refusal to give in to death or to accept it as final. Ruth discovered the truth that, as said in Song of Songs, quote, love is stronger than death. Love persists after death, be that her love for her dead husband or love of her mother-in-law whom she would not abandon. Ruth defies both logic, knowing that there would be no one to marry her, and convention in going to Boaz on the threshing floor to ask him to redeem her. See chapter 3 of the book of Ruth. So too Lot's daughters defied the implacable fate that they believed had demolished the world. 
They would let no obstacle, no norm, no inhibition stop them from assuring that life would go on. This too is the power of Tamar, who defied the pattern of passive widows letting their lives drain away. She risked her life to ensure that the covenantal chain would not end with her. Ruth, Tamar, Lot's daughters, they embody a fierce, unyielding rejection of death's final victory. The determination to have life go on reflects an unlimited embrace of life. Knowing full well the extra risks and knowing the likely pain of loss of loved one, the person answers against all logic, I choose life, and then makes it happen. Says Soloveitchik, Judaism preaches that life driven by love is strong enough to overcome all the enemies of life and the inescapable natural phenomenon of death itself. This is the unlikely, in a sense unbelievable, message of Messianism and of Jewish religion. But one must embrace life intensely, must take the worst blows, and come back with more life in order to make this come true. The proof that the Torah is not spouting hollow affirmation or spreading Pollyannish illusions is the women who fought back and overcame the finality of death. This is the force in humans that has the ability to give the final victory to life. For years I carried Soloveitchik's insight in my mind as a deeply Jewish message. Then in the 1980s I came across a newspaper story of a baby boom in Nicaragua during and following the catastrophic Sandinista Civil War. This reminded me of the Jewish DP camps after the Shoah, which observers reported had the second highest birth rate in the world. Apparently, people everywhere respond to death with an affirmation of life. After being drowned in death, people either give up or they intensely reaffirm hope and belief in the future by generating new life. In the Warsaw Ghetto at the end, the death rate was 40 times the birth rate. People understood there was no hope and that no new child would survive. But after the war, the Jewish people responded to the tsunami of death in the Holocaust with the greatest outburst of life, biological and cultural, in Jewish history. The United States of America also had a baby boom after World War II. My wife and I chose to have a large family. In the 1960s, five children was considered a large family. In 2002, we suffered the ultimate parental devastation the death of our son J.J., then 36. In the aftermath, I struggled with the unbearable pain of being cut off and wanting him back and the urge from somewhere deep inside of me to strike back at death with more life. And over the next two years, out of love and longing, his two sisters, who had four children in their families, each had a fifth child and named them after J.J., Tamar's response, and those before and after down to this day, is the reason why I firmly believe that the Torah and Talmud's messianic promise, the ultimate triumph of life, will come true.